you're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. When I was growing up, years ago, there was a uh, cable station in the Philadelphia area called Prism. And what Prism was, they started by Ed Snyder of the Philadelphia Flyers, and it was a network that showed home sporting events, which back then no one did. So it showed, you know, the Phillies at the vet. It showed the Sixers and Flyers at the Spectrum. But it also showed movies. And one movie that my buddies always watched when it was on, and we would say lines from it, and we just loved it, was a movie called The Hollywood Nights. And we loved the character New Bomb Turk. And my guest today played New Bomb Turk and has had a wonderful career. My guest is Robert Wool. How you doing, Robert? Hi, Coop. How you doing? Doing well. I'm doing well. So you're a fellow New Jersey guy. I believe you grew up in Union? That's correct. Now, growing up, did you know you wanted to get into acting? How did how did this career start off? I knew I wanted to be in the entertainment business. I basically thought I'd be probably on the other side of the camera, writing, producing, directing. But just by osmosis, by watching movies and, you know, being in drama classes, you know, I became an actor. Uh... You know, but I always, I always knew I wanted to be in the storytelling, you know, the uh, entertainment business. Now, growing up in New Jersey, how did you decide to go to the University of Houston? They accepted me. <laughs> Just that simple. I, there was a war going on. Everybody else rejected me, and I had to go somewhere. And the University of Houston, I guess, needed out-of-state students, perhaps, I guess. And it was really cheap to go to back then, so... That's how I got there. That's, that's just plain and simple. Now, did you decide for a certain reason? You knew you wanted to get in Hollywood. Is that why you started and took the major of drama? Well, here's the thing. I wanted to go to UCLA, and my parents said, no, you're not going that far away. So I wound up going to Texas. What difference it make? So, uh, uh, and also, it was, I knew Houston. I wanted to go somewhere where they had a major league baseball team, and Houston had just... Elvin Hayes, the famous UCLA-Houston game with Elvin Hayes and Lou Alcindor, and Houston had scored 100 points in a football game. So I knew they had a big-time program, and that was that was important to me because I like sports. Now, did you play sports in high school? Because you seem that you know you have a love of sports, and uh, and of course because Arliss and stuff like that. But did you play sports in high school? Just intramurals. Now you're from uh, Central Jersey. Are you a Mets fan or a Dodgers fan, or did you become a uh, uh, or have you always grown up as a Yankees fan? Well, I grew up, okay, it was, it was the growing years, it was Mantle and Maris. You know, that's the Yankees, and they won, so you're attracted to them. Also, the Mets weren't quite around yet. You know, just, you know, then, excuse me, then, uh, now I'm a big believer in, <laughs> I have a motto, life is always better when the home team wins. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> used to have season tickets to the Dodgers when I lived in LA and uh, it's such a historic stadium I go to Phillies games now because it's a it's a new stadium I mean newer I mean I grew up watching games when I, before I moved out the west coast I grew up watching games at the uh, vet which was falling apart by the time I left uh, but do you like what you know you seem to be a baseball fan what is what is your favorite ballpark that you've gone to Tampa Bay. I think I've been to every other one, though. So, that said, my favorite ballparks. 
let's, let's, Camden Yards was the first of the retro ballparks. And so that was the original, so that's still a terrific park. Out of the new way, you have to put Boston and Boston and uh, Wrigley in a different category. Right. Uh, you have to put them in a different category, you know, because of the age and the character and everything else. Uh, the Dodger Stadium is, you know, held up well, but out of a new batch of ballparks, two of them jump out by far. One is uh, uh, San Francisco's park, which is great, with the big Coke bottle and everything else. Uh, that's a great park, whatever they call it now. It used to be phone company because it was Pat Bell, and then it was AT&T, and I always call it a phone company ballpark. And the other great one, which is the prettiest ballpark probably in the majors, is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's, uh, 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 that stadium, I, I recommend everybody to go see it. It is just, first of all, small. It only seats about 38,000. It's only one deck. There's a ground floor and one deck. That's it. But that is in an overlooked, they have this Roberto Clemente Bridge that goes right downtown and it all faces downtown and the skyline. They put stuff up on the skyline during the games when they win. It's, it's, that is the prettiest ballpark in the country. And San Francisco is the other one. Now, I have to ask you, I want to talk about your acting career, but I love talking baseball. Are you a DL guy, a DH guy, or a no DH guy? Oh, definitely DH. It's it's it's, it's irrelevant. I mean, it, it just, I, and I've done a 180 on it, by the way. But it's absolutely ridiculous not to have it anymore. First of all, how many times is the pitcher really coming up to bat in today's game? Once. I mean, they're out by the fifth inning, so maybe they get maybe maybe twice if they're if they're winning. So that's number one. Number two is why would anybody want to watch? A guy hitting, you know, point ninety, rather than have a guy hitting three ten and who can hit the ball over the fence. Why would anybody want to see that? And, and as far as strategy, there is no strategy. There's no strategy anymore. Uh, that's just you know because it, it's going to be hit for anyway. So I, I don't. And also, then it makes the game. You know, then you got a pitching change. It's just it, no, no DH. I want to see runs. I do want to. See, I don't want to see the ball flying out like it is now. This is juice. But I want to see offense. It, it's, it, nobody goes to see, you know, a pitcher hit. It's just, why? You know, it's like you want to see offense. It, it's, it's, no, no, definitely. And by the way, it's going to become a moot point in about, within a year, at max, too, because they're going to go to the DH. Well, the National League will absolutely go to the DH. Remember, since 1973, they're the only league in the world that doesn't have the DH. What bothers me about today's game is is the uh, analytics. And, you know, a lot of people love that. I It's hard for me to watch a baseball game because, you know, we grew up at a time, I'm, I'm 55, you're a little older, we grew up at a time where pitchers pitched, you know, nine innings. Jack Morris pitched whatever, how many innings in that playoff game. Now you watch it and you get to 100 pitches and they pull them out. And I go, back in the day, that would have never happened. Yesterday, last night, Tyler Skaggs, pitcher for the Angels, was pulled, I think, after 73 pitches and seven and third innings or something like that. It's like, that's absurd. I mean, that's just, you know, absurd. Uh, yes, the Connell, however, what is interesting about the analytics this year, though, is for the first time in history, relief pitchers have higher ERAs than starters. So maybe they got to rethink this thing a little bit. You know, the idea is that it's true that the third time the pitch, uh, hitter sees you, he knows you better. There's no question about that. But there's also grit, and there's also, uh, here's the thing is, aren't you better off, the fewer pitches you have pitched in a game, the better your chances are of winning. So if you take a guy out in the fifth or sixth, you're going to use at least three or four pitchers. One of them is at least not going to have it most of the time. At least one of them's not going to have it. So, whereas analytics are a very good tool, they should not be the be-all and the end-all. It's a tool. It's, the, it's an important tool. It, it helps a lot. I have Joey DePoto of the Seattle Mariners is a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, the, the game is that way now. There's no question about it. However, there's no analytic for character. There's no analytic for head, and there's no analytic for heart. And there's no analytic for, for uh, in modern medicine. That's the other thing, too. Um, but that, and I do believe in the eye test. I absolutely do. I mean, people, you can't believe your eyes. I go, wait a minute. You're going to tell me that I don't believe what I mean. I go, for example, in a court of law, which is somewhat more important than, than baseball statistics, the most important things are a thing called eyewitnesses. So I'm not supposed to believe that and watch what I'm seeing? You know, I, I, I don't buy that. I also 
believe in wins, and I also believe in RBI. And it is RBI, not RBI. Explain that. An RBI is a run batted in. Right. True, right? But it is a unit. It's a, it's a unit. It's an RBI. Do you ever see anybody, when they talk about an air say, it's got 5,000 BTU? <laughs> no, no. It's an RBI. It's a, it's a run batted in, but if you're abbreviating it, abbreviating it, it's a unit. It's an RBI. That two would be two RBIs. It's not two R. It's not two runs that it is. It's an RBI. You're just pluralizing the the, the stack. You know what I'm saying? When you say runs that it is, but it's more, when you say RBI, that's an abbreviation, and two of them is two RBIs. There you go. Now, now, as a baseball fan, what was it like when you were in Bull Durham? Was that just a great feeling that you could suit up, sit in a dugout? How did first of all? How did you get that part, and what what was your feeling when you were actually in a ballpark? Well, I auditioned for the part for Ron Shelton, and uh, I was very very lucky to get the part. And being in a bit of a minor league stadium here, so and it was great fun because you're a bunch of you know, it was like a big summer camp because the, the cast is ninety percent male. They're hanging out with all the guys, and I just come from Good Morning Vietnam where I hung up with another bunch of guys. And, you know, everybody, Ron Sheldon, they could play baseball. They were baseball fans. Ron actually, Ron Sheldon, the writer-director, had a week of uh, a baseball camp before the show, before they started shooting. And he actually had to replace the first baseman because he didn't think he played well enough. That he had to believe him. Uh, so, uh, so it was great fun. It was cold. We shot it in November, and it's cold. The meeting on the mound and some of these scenes, you'll see the breath on the mound. It, it, was, it was, you know, it was cold those nights. And I got to meet. I have a lifelong friendship with some of the people. Ron Shelton. I had a friendship, a great friendship with the man who played the, the manager, the skipper, which was uh, Trey Wilson, who unfortunately passed very shortly thereafter, within a year or so, and uh, which was really a brain aneurysm. And um, it's a great, you know, and it holds up well. And it's a good piece of prose, a terrific piece of prose. And uh, it's nice that. 30 years later, it's become a standard, a standard of, of you know, a sports movie. That, that was quite wonderful. Now, when you graduated from University of Houston... Whoa, 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 who said I graduated? You didn't graduate. Oh, no, I crammed four years at the seven. <laughs> now... With the truth, and I still didn't graduate. However, they made me a distinguished alumni, even though I don't have a degree. <laughs> That's always good. That means you're, you're important. That's true. Now, now, when you got done and didn't graduate, when what was your course of action to start acting? Where did you want to go? Well, it wasn't to, it wasn't to be actor, you know, it was to be a filmmaker. So I went back to New York, which is New Jersey, where I'm from, and I started. I, I was writing comedy for local comedians in uh, Houston. So the, you know, Saturday Night Live had just exploded; it just gone on the air. And New York there was a comedy scene with Catch a Rising Star and the improvisation and people like Freddie Prinz and David Brenner and Gabe uh, uh, Kaplan and Billy Crystal were coming out of there. So I thought I'd give that a shot. And that's what happened. I went, to, I went there. I started writing comedy. I got to write for Rodney Dangerfield as my first gig. And, uh, and I started doing my own act, my own stand-up act. And I did that for about a year, about a year or so, and it went very well. And I came out to California. Rodney actually brought me out, which gave me a big leg up. And so I got established very quickly into the L.A. comedy scene, which I could, which people would see me, because you had to be seen. And if I had my own act, they could see me, rather than worrying always about auditions. Now, I was, I did take many drama classes, so I was prepared for when auditions happened. And uh, that's led to the acting career. And Hollywood Nights. And Hollywood Nights. That's where my, that was my first one. That was one of those movies that, you know, as I said, one thing about Prism was you would see movies that you wouldn't see before, you know, you wouldn't really hear much about it. And it became a cult classic to us. Was was What was that like being the lead in your first movie? It was fun. It was fun. I mean, uh, I was having fun. I mean, the vehicle suited me well. They let me play. Floyd Mutrix, the writer-director, let me play. He let me live. He let me, you know... Uh, 
it just, uh, it was a great, it, and we had really talent. Boy, I had a great act of talent. You know, it's Tony Danza's first movie, Michelle Pfeiffer's first movie, uh, Frank, one of Fran Drescher's earliest movies. I mean, he had an eye for talent. And so that was a lot of fun. I mean, that was, we shot six weeks. And, uh, you know, it didn't do well in the theaters when it first came out, but he became this cult classic on cable TV afterwards. Well, another thing that I don't think a lot of people know is you wrote for Police Squad. Yes, because what happened was um, about the time I was doing Hollywood Nights, or maybe when I first came out, uh, the Zucker brothers had seen me perform at the comic strip, and they brought me into audition for Airplane. And I didn't get the part, but a year or two later, they when they when they were doing Police Squad, they called my my managers and asked would I be interested in writing for it because they remembered the work, and I said yes. And that I learned a lot from that. It's a great, short-lived, but a, a terrific experience. I, I, you know, it's one of those projects. I'm very proud to have my name on. Now, at that time, were you one to concentrating more on acting or writing? Because I know you wrote for the Oscars and some other writing gigs. What was your main concentration back then? I suppose it was, you know, being in films. So, but I was also a staff writer for. After Police Squad, Paramount gave me a contract as a writer, and I'm still doing stand-up, and I'm still going up for parts, but I wasn't getting a lot of parts, uh, so I had to support myself. So I was writing and uh, doing stand-up around the country. Now, the comedy world has changed a lot. What was your experience on the road back then? Because there probably wasn't a lot of clubs back then. Oh, there were. There actually there were. The comedy boom exploded between... Between uh, uh, Saturday Night Live and Steve Martin and Robin Williams and the improv and the, and the comedy world exploded. Uh, this is back in the all the guys. It, when, when, we, when I would go on at Catch um, Your Rising Star, the improv in New York, any given night it was me, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, uh, Paul Reiser, Keenan Waynes. Uh, so that would be Rep. George Wallace. Uh, so that would be one, Gilbert Gottfried. So we were all together. So, and then the comedy starts to go, and I played a lot of clubs, all, you know, everywhere from Denver, Portland, Seattle, uh, you know, all around Texas. Um, you know, it was, it, the clubs were all over back then. You know, Atlanta, the great punchline, uh, a lot of places. Um, Rascals in New Jersey, uh, it was a terrific club. In Philadelphia, Stars. Stars was a great club. Uh, Stephen Starr, who was a young guy, young guy who, our age, who, um, opened the club and it was a terrific club I had lost contact with him now he switched gears and he's the number one restaurant tour in Philadelphia and crime and among those in New York uh, he is he's Budokan and Morimoto and he's won the James Beard Award for restaurant tour so he's so and so there's a lot of great clubs and you meet people and like anything else, life is about relationships. It's funny, I didn't know, because I go to some of Stephen Starr's restaurants in Philadelphia, I never know he started in comedy, because when I did stand-up, the two clubs were the Comedy Factory Outlet and the Comedy Works. And I think you played Comedy Works a few times. Which is the one above the Lebanese restaurant? Comedy Works. Yeah, that's it. That was it. Yeah, I played there a couple of times, that's right. Now, you're, you're slugging along. What do you feel is your big, big break in your acting? Uh, okay, a couple of things happened in succession. One was Mary Lambert. Well, a couple of things. One is I did this two-week gig improvising comedy for this little movie that they said they want to improvise some comedy, so they hired me for two weeks. I ad-libbed one line, which is typically just go Steelers. That's the only one that I have. That's it. And thank God for that because... If you don't have a speaking part, you don't get residual. And this movie, they said, what do you do? What movie? I go, I don't know what this is about. I'm in an all-guys club, and women are dancing on stage, and there's something water on. That's all I I don't know what the hell this movie's about. <laughs> and so I forgot about it, and they kept saying, what about that movie? I said, I don't know. Who knows? And it comes out, and it's flash dance. So I have one line in it. You see me sitting in the background. But you get residuals, and residuals are based upon how much movie, how much money the movie grossed. So, so I have one line, I've made more money on that, but I've made it some other movies where I had to lead. The, um, true, true, that's true. So I did that, and then Barry Levinson, who I had read for, who had auditioned me for a couple of his projects, Diner 
and the TV series of Alan Arkin and something else, finally cast me. I auditioned for Good Morning Vietnam, and that started the ball rolling. So Good Morning Vietnam, and then I get the part in Bull Durham, and then right after, just when that comes out, I get the part in Batman. So that period right there was just a great, great period for me, you know, between, was it 86 to 89? That was pretty great. And then I direct my own movie, and then we start up the Marlins. So that, that the 80s and the late 80s and the 90s were quite good for me. Well, now Batman just turned, I believe, 30. I think is that one of the reasons why you were down in San Antonio this past weekend? Yes, yes, yes. I was in San Antonio last week. I think the actual anniversary is this Sunday, the 23rd, 30 years ago. Ugh, uh, is Batman, and I'm going to be there. And I'm also doing, you know, I've never done any of these comic cons, but now I'm doing them because they offer you and. And it's fun. I actually have a lot of fun in them. I mean, meeting the fans are very, you don't realize that you touch people. You're just, you know, you're so far removed on a big screen. You're acting, and 30 years later, something like you're talking about the Hollywood nice. You know, you do touch people. So, and it's kind of nice. I'll be doing another one at the, the Mohegan Sun Casino in, uh, in Connecticut on uh, August, was it, 9th, 10th, and 11th. Looking forward to that. And by his like this, I'm flying in early because I'm going to a baseball game with Bob Ryan at Fenway Park. Bob D. Bob Ryan? Yeah, yeah. Now, how did you meet Bob Ryan? I love him. I watch, I watch Around the Horn all the time, and he's so great because he just has such insight. How did you meet Bob Ryan? I haven't met Bob Ryan yet. He's <laughs> a great person. But for some reason, you know, do you remember the Sports Reporters, the great uh, show on ASPN on Sunday mornings? Yes, I loved it. Right. Bob Ryan, Lupica, Mitch Album. Well, they now have a podcast. Twice a week, these three guys, the sports reporters. And it's, sometimes they're not able to do it, so they ask other reporters to join them, and they've been asking me to join them a lot. So I met Bob, you know, uh, I, I don't think I've ever met Mitch face-to-face. I know Lupica. Uh, so, and I've been on about a half a dozen times in the last couple of months. So I wrote, and I said, I'm coming into town. There's nothing more I'd rather do than go to a baseball game with Bob or Fenway Park with Bob Ryan. And Bob wrote me back saying it's a date, so I so we're going to actually meet in person that day. That's awesome. Now you know your love for sports shows when you came up with Arliss. How did you create that idea? Because I love that show, and it's funny because Jim Turner was on a while back, and you know Sandra O's career is blown up, but in HBO that was one of the first. I'm, I may be wrong, but that was the time around Dream On, I think, and it was a hit, and, and people liked it. How did that idea come up, and then how did you go about pitching it? Because back then, you know, a show about a sports agent, it wasn't, you know, people never thought that before. Okay, there's a lot of questions. How did Jim, what was Jim's, uh, what was Jim's uh, memories of all of us? He, he loved it, and he said, you know, but I believe it got canceled, or before he thought it should have, and I know he had uh, he loved working on it. He said it was great, and he and his character was a fun character. I mean, it was you know all the characters were good, but he he had good uh, remembrance of it. And he just the people really started to recognize him more, and it was a bigger audience than he thought. Well, that's true. Uh, we went up in the ratings. We were on seven seasons, and we went up in the ratings every single year, which is very difficult to do. Very difficult. Most shows never do that. Never. But we went up, usually a peak, and then it starts to go down. But we went up every year in the ratings for seven straight years. Uh, we were also the stepchild over there, though, because the, the people don't look at sports like they look at drama. You know, or they look at, I mean, it's all drama, but they don't look, because, here's the whole thing, is that Fran Leibowitz, the great writer, the acerbic writer from New York, once came up to me at a party, she's chain smoking, and she says, Robert, I hate sports, but I love your show. And I said, I said, Fran, that's because it's not about sports. It's about characters in the world of sports. That's entirely different. I'm much more interested in the character. Because sports, the reason most sports movies suck and they don't work is, uh, Ron Shelton and I have talked about this all the time, is they're always told from the point of view of a fan. And the fan only cares about one thing. Does the team win or lose? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Or it's a big game. It's a big game. It's like, and Ron Shelton said, there are no every now and then maybe more than that. He goes, I, when he bought Derby, he says, I don't know what the point of view of the fan is, but he was a second baseman. And he said, but I know what the point of view of that guy sitting in the field is. 
at second base, his point of view is I'm trying to keep my job. I said, exactly. And my family ran a business. Uh, we had a family business. And I knew about, you know, businesses. So that's to me what it was about. It was always about a guy running a business who had a very unique clientele. And I knew something about the world, but I knew something about, uh, about running a business. You know, and he was an agent, you know, which was a, uh, it's a parasitic profession by nature. Um, I don't say parasitic in a negative way, but it just is. You know, you are making a deal, you're taking a percentage of, 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 of a piece of a product, you know. So, and I didn't pitch, actually, they came to me. Uh, HBO actually came to me because Mike Tolan had pitched the idea of having a spinal tap of sports uh, on HBO. And uh, they came to me and I said, well, I don't know what that means, but I'd like to write a six-episode miniseries, a satire on the world of professional sports, sports as told through the eyes of a self-serving agent. Because, that was my through line, because in 1995 or 1996 when I wrote this, I had just read Trump's The Art of the Deal. Think about this. I had just read his book. And as I'm reading it, and I'm just narrating the story, I go, I don't believe a fucking word. <laughs> I think he's lying through his teeth. And I just don't believe any of this. So I'd like to see what really went on. And I said, but boy, but that's a great counterpoint for this series. Arliss will tell you what he'll narrate, his spin, but let's see what actually went on. It's a good, it's a good through line. Now, in fact, when Arliss comes on the, during the credits, and it always says, my name is Arliss Michaels, blah, blah, blah. We spin out, and it's, there's a book cover. It says, Arliss, the art of the sports super agent. And he's on the cover. That was all from the art of the deal. Now, go figure 30 years later, you know, or whatever, it's 25 years later, that, you know, this is happening, or 20 years, whatever. That, you know, but that's where it came from. That's where the book cover and the through line came from. In the, that, that was sort of an inspiration type of thing uh, for the actual structure. And then we did less and less narrating after a while. Now, so they came to me and they said yes. Now, when you, when you started to get it created and started writing it, you saw the Trump book, but did you have to go talk to sports agents so you had a little bit of an idea, or did you just base it on a Hollywood agent, or how did you come up with that, the knowledge? I spoke to a lot, no, a lot of sports agents, you know, Lee Steinberg, Arne Tellum, uh, Neil, uh, Madam Katz, Tom Rich, uh, 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 what's his name, Drew Rosenhaus, uh, no, I spoke to a lot of agents, sports agents, and but also, also, again, business, I also thought he's no different than a real estate agent, a talent agent. An agent is an agent. They have to make the sale. They don't get paid. They, get paid. they work on commission. So an agent is an agent. But, yes, I spoke to quite a few agents. Now, it, it goes through the first season. When did you know it would get picked up for the second season? And did you think it would have the, the life that it had? No, because we got almost canceled every year. We were canceled after our second year or third year we were canceled and then we do know and then we went on a campaign and brought it back it was very it was very unique that we actually brought a show back that was canceled um and but you know so we got picked and we were always a stepchild there we were always the last to get picked up and the first to get out the air we had the shortest window of anybody every year it was a battle we were always because we weren't getting the awards the you know the critics either loved us or hated us we were very polarizing uh, but it, what was good for me was, the, I mean, I was stopped in the street by Neil Simon, by David Halberstam. David Milch would come up to me and talk about this show. I mean, so that was very rewarding because, uh, because the critics either loved us or hated us, and they belittled us, and they didn't know what we were, and they didn't watch it really. They didn't really watch the show. So uh, we were always the last to get picked up, always. Now. During that, during the stint of uh, Harless, did you have a lot of input on the scripts? Were you writing a lot, or because it was perfect for you? It's both hats. You get to act and write. But what was your input on the scripts? I pretty much had the total control of Harless. You know, I, I, you know, I led the writers' room. I, you know, all the scripts, you know, had to went through me. You know, they all went through me. The storylines all went through me. I would, you know, just open the editing room, directing room. So I was, you know, I had great people to work with. I collaborated with great people. But ultimately, you know, I, I had control of Arliss. So all storylines, every, pretty every choice. So I was very fortunate there that HBO gave me that, trusted me that much. 
Now, did you have a lot of agents, I mean, not agents, uh, athletes that would come up to you or want to be on the show? Interestingly, uh, because at the beginning, nobody knew what it was. So Mike Tolan was very instrumental in getting, like, Shaq in the pilot and uh, to do a cameo. And uh, Scotty Pippen was the first one to say yes as far as just shooting, you know, B-roll. But the first, uh, actually, you know, we wrote a script and it was a team owner. It was a see where all this was going to uh, negotiate with a team owner. And uh, at this time, Larry Sanders is on. So I said, you know, we could pepper this with cameos like Larry does. You know, they won't be able to carry plot because they're not actors, but we can have good texture. And luckily for us, Jerry Jones was the first one to say yes. So he played a team owner, playing himself. And then, you know, which was very, very, very cool of him. And then after a while, as Glenn Fry said to me, uh, the late, great Glenn Fry said, being on Arnold Short actually is like being a band going on Saturday Night Live. He said, they all want to be on me. You know, it's like, and uh, we were very fortunate. I mean, I had 250 athletes. I had just about everybody on. There was only one or two we couldn't get for different reasons. One was Muhammad Ali, and the other was um, Martina Navratilova, because she lived in Switzerland. Uh, but mostly, most of the athletes came on, and they, we had a great time with them. Now, was there any athletes that were coming on set that you were really excited to meet? the show got canceled. I got a phone call so I'm not picking up the show. Now, did that piss you off because people love the show and it must, as a well, creator... Well, like I said, we had gone up for eight, for seven straight seasons and also everybody's contract was up for, you know, it would cost a, considerably more money to bring the show back. I, I think Sandra, oh, was ready to move on and uh, not that we couldn't replace her I mean you always replace everybody so it was going to cost more money maybe and, but they wanted to go other, do other things and like I said we were never the critics darling we would we have gotten any nominations or something although we did win awards for like diversity and other stuff but you know it was seven years is not a bad run I mean, 80 episodes the uh, it was hard keep up the quality, but I would have sure would have loved to have done it more. And uh, so that was, you know, it was, you know, it was tough, but, you know, that's life, you know, life's, you know, that's what it is. So they gave, you know, then they said, what else do you want to do? And I thought for a while, and then I came up with this idea of doing these history classes uh, at NYU and all around, and how to make it funny and make it interesting. And they let me do that. Now, do you ever think, looking back, how it would have been a much even bigger crowd because with the way cable, I mean, cable has blown up. People, you know, back then, a lot of people didn't have HBO. They did, but not like they have now. Like everyone has Amazon and Netflix. Do you think that would have made a difference back then where you would have been got, getting huge numbers so you would have become their darling? No, I would never become their darling. Never. I, I Never. Because you had Sex in the City then, you had The Sopranos, um, you know, they were in love with Six Feet Under for a couple of seasons. Uh, so I would have never become the darling. That, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but I was becoming a strong player. But they all felt that, you know, from their point of view, they wanted those awards. And we weren't getting them. So even though we were building up and the show was getting better and better and better, uh, we were not 
career and you were on a young comedian special back when you were in the beginning was that because of Rodney because he knew you and liked your act? No, that's, that's because uh, that was one of the comics I had a pretty good stand-up comedy act back then. Do you remember who the other acts were on that show? I know the host was Victor Borga I don't remember who the other actors were on the show, the other performers were, no Now, as you're going along with Arliss and stuff like that, you're not really doing stand-up as much I guess, did you miss stand-up? true. I mean, I do stand up. I did stand up in the Philadelphia area for, and on the road for six years. And then, you know, I got out of it, but occasionally I go on stage now and it just seems they're a lot more uptight now. The crowds, they don't want to laugh and you have to watch what you say. Well, yes. I mean, Jerry talks about this, about not doing colleges because they're too damn PC. Bill Moore talks about this and I see it. Uh, but that's the whole society. I mean, the whole Joe Biden thing about hugging women. It's like, uh, come on. It's like, you know, he grew up, he's an older, different generation, but it's, but you're right, it's a more uptight generation, um, which is not putting a, I was going to say they're more uptight, they're more concerned, but that's, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't, I don't know if that's good, but it is what it is. Now, after Arliss, what were your, goals. I mean, you also did the show, the other show on HBO, but what did you want to do? I mean, because you had, you already had great success. You were a stand-up, you were a creator of a show, a popular show. Where, as a performer, where does your mind want to take you? Well, again, I was trying to, you know, I wanted to, I'd written two scripts that were both supposed to, as a director, writer-director, uh, both of them were supposed to get made, and at the last second, both of them didn't get made. And then, uh, I toured with Assume the Position, took that through, you know, 2010-11, and then, you know, I had a couple of projects, I just didn't go. And then Assume the Position was supposed to become a series, and then my friend Glenn Fry was going to be part of it, but we were going to, I was going to do, you know, history, he was going to do music, and, uh, but then we took a, I took a turn because Glenn and I were writing the Broadway musical version of Hotel California, and we workshopped at the University of Michigan, but during that period, Glenn, get, Glenn gets sick. So there's a bunch of projects. And also, I took the, I also took the, I, I took, made the choice, I'm going to enjoy my life. It's like, I'm not going to have my life defined on whether I'm in a sitcom or whether I'm going to do this. I mean, if, if somebody comes along, just great, I'm happy, they're going, but I'm just really happy with what I've done and, uh, and just enjoy my life. I travel a lot. 
And uh, if a project, you know, comes along, I very rarely say no. I used to say no a lot. Maybe I said it too much. Uh, but nowadays, it's different. You get older, you're the fewer and far between. And, but I just enjoy every day. Uh, I, I just enjoy every day. You know, I'm going to, blog, going to London a week from today because when you talk about sports, I'm going to uh, the Yankee Red Sox games in London. You know, so I just enjoy, you know, going to, you know, events and doing it, with, you know, with uh, the family and taking my, you know, family. And just, I enjoy that. <laughs> I really do. Now, you were on Chopped. How did that come about? Oh, oh yeah. I was never so scared in my life. Uh, it came about because... I guess they found out that my good buddies, I mentioned Stephen Starr, there's another friend of mine, my very close friend, Drew Nieperet, owns Nobu, and he owns Tribeca Grill. And so because of them, and I do like food, I, you know, I enjoy food, and I like restaurants. And so I guess they found out that I was into that. And so they said, do you want to be a guest on, on Chopped? Now, I had never, ever seen Chopped. And so I said, great, I figured, I know it's a game show, it's a, it's a competition, so I'll be a guest judge. Not knowing that when I say yes, I'm going to be a guest chef. And I don't cook. I mean, I can make eggs. But I don't cook. So I was absolutely terrified not to make a fool of myself. And it was the most terrifying experience, performing experience of my life. Uh, I went to a friend of mine's restaurant. And they let, me into the, uh, they let me into the kitchen. I learned how to make a poached egg, green goddess dressing. You know, some kind of like uh, garlic butter. And so no matter what they had in that basket, it was going to have poached egg, uh, <laughs> green goddess dressing, and, and, the, and the garlic butter, no matter what was in that basket. So, uh, and I had a great time. Uh, it was all comics that day with me, Tommy Davidson, Sinbad, and oh, and a woman who won it. And God, I cannot remember her name. Please forgive me. And she was very good, too. Very good. That was, was a great show, actually. Uh, <laughs> Well, you shoot, you shoot all day. I mean, I got there like at eight o'clock in the morning, and I wasn't done till seven, and I didn't make the final round. It's funny because I do watch the, I watched the show, and I know Bobby Slayton had said he was a alternate for it, and he said he thought he could cook. When we saw what was going on, he was like, "That's a lot of pressure." Yeah, it is. It is a lot of pressure, especially when you can't cook. Now. What what's your stance on the world Hall of Fame? Do you think some of these people should get in that aren't? Do you think Bonds should be in? I know your friends with them, Bonds and Clemens. Do you think they should be in? Let me put the question back to you. What is the whole thing? You know how it started? You know how it started? Uh, uh, here's how the Hall of Fame started. Rather than this rose, it's not the pearly gates. It's a museum. It's a building. A museum. Okay. It started because Abner Doubleday, who was a Civil War general, and uh, in fact, he was at, the, at Fort Sumter uh, for the Union. Abner Sumter lived in Cooperstown, Ohio. And there was always this cockamamie theory that Abner Doubleday discovered baseball. And as George Will mentioned, when Abner Doubleday died, the New York Times did like a page at obituary of him. Never once is the word baseball ever mentioned. But years later, in the 1920s, during the Depression hits, and Abbott Doubleday, who was from Cooperstown, they were excavating, and they find a baseball. And so they came up with this theory, ah, you see, this proves that Abbott Doubleday owns, uh, started baseball. Now, the town of Cooperstown was run by a couple of people. One was James Fenimore Cooper, you know, the class of the Mohicans, who wrote that, and that's where Cooperstown comes from. Uh, another one is uh, Thoreau and Walden Woods and all that. And the other one was Clark family. And Clark had back, was, a, was a venture capitalist, and he had backed the Singer sewing machine. So he was a very, very big player. In fact, his great-granddaughter, or his granddaughter, Jane Clark, still runs the whole thing. Uh, and what happened was, so he took the baseball, Clark, and he bought it for five dollars. Okay, he bought the first piece of memorabilia for five dollars. He had a small hotel, and he, in order to get some tours, maybe he put the ball on, on display in the lobby. And suddenly, this is during the depression, and all the mills had closed there. And suddenly, people are coming from hundreds of miles away to take a look at this baseball. And he gets an idea, saying, "Wow, if they're coming to see this, 
what if we had a Hall of Fame here museum and we could you know, get tours here year-round? So that's what happened. And in order to get the money for baseball and to get all the stuff money, they, the, the, he and the baseball guys said, listen, if we get a Hall of Fame, they went to the sports writer and said, you'll get the vote to be who's in that wing and you know, giving them power. So they kept writing articles about why there should be a Hall of Fame. Why? Because they were going to get a vote. So this is all a tourist thing. It's just not, this is nothing about anything else. Now, getting, so let's understand what the Hall of Fame is. Also, the, the writers nowadays. The writers are voting, and I know writers, it's media. You got, And also, they restricted only baseball print writers, which means that the old line that somebody who has got a blog for a couple of years can, can vote for the Hall of Fame, but Vince Scully could not. So, you know, no broadcaster can vote for the Hall of Fame. They don't. So let's understand what this is. It is a museum. That's what it is. Uh, which, by the way, now is being taken over by the Saber Metrics. These guys are just so into this same, the numbers, the numbers, the numbers. And it's not the Hall of Numbers. It's the Hall of Fame. Now, getting to your questions, a long way of getting to Bonds and Clemens. I just can't imagine, especially when you're talking about the steroid era, I mean, what do you figure? I can count four to six guys that I know who are steroid users who are in the Hall of Fame now. So are you going to keep out these two guys on a moral thing, that you, which was never proven? It's never been proven because either of them, I mean, one of them went to court, went to the Supreme Court, and not the Supreme Court, went to Congress. You know, it's funny. When people say, hey, if somebody accused you of something and you didn't do it, you'd sue them. Well, that's what he did. <laughs> that's what he did. And, he, you know, so, and the, you know, so, if you ask people who's the best pitcher uh, you ever faced or who's the best left-handed hitter you ever faced, keeping these guys out, it, I, you know, do you really have this romantic idea of the Hall of Fame? I mean, the first guy they put in, the first guy was Ty Cobb. Right. Ty Cobb was a racist, a bigot, a Klansman. He threw games for money. He threw baseball games for money gamblers. He actually went to the stands one time to beat up a heckler who turned out to be a quadriplegic. He was a wife beater. May have shot somebody. And this is the first guy they put in. So don't, this holier-than-thou idea of the Hall of Fame is lost on me. Well, what cracks me up, as you know, you had said about the holier-than-thou, is... You know, years ago, I know I was, I was a Phillies fan, and Steve Carlton had said, back, you know, in the day, they would have a bowl full of speed when the guys came in to the locker rooms, and it was legal, so no one said anything. A bowl of steam? Speed. Oh, speed, yeah, the greats. Yeah, no, of course, athletes forever are going to do something to get an edge. They're always going to do that. And because, you know, I, and, and, I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd or not. It's absurd. I mean, especially when you got guys who everybody knows who took steroids are in. Now, what's your view on Pete everybody. Rose? What's that? What's your view on Pete Rose? Do you think he should be in? Well, yeah. Because, oh, yeah, Pete Rose should be in because it's a little long now to, you know, again, this goes back to the Black Sox scandal and all this crap about betting on baseball. And, yeah, okay, fine. But, you know, I don't know mass, you know, I mean, somebody from the Manson family is about to get out. I think what they, you know, it's like, I think what they did is a little bit stronger than Pete Rose at this point. Yeah, put him in. What this, by the way, he is in the Hall of Fame. You look at every, you go in there, you see all the records, Pete Rose is in there. So he's, he's not in the writer's wing. That's what he's not in. He's not in that wing, but he's already in the Hall of Fame. As is Roger Clemens, as is Barry Bonds. They're all there. They're represented there. They still have a plaque. There's a big difference. It's like, to me, it's like saying, okay, I have the Metropolitan Museum of Art, because that's what it is. It's a museum. And, you know, I just found out that Rembrandt, you know, he copied some colors from some other guy, so maybe we shouldn't hang his pictures there. You know, like, what? What? You know, it, that, it's silly. It's silly. Now, what's your take on the season this year? What do you think about the Yankees? Because they had so many injuries, and they're playing great. I mean, how does it happen in this day and age? Because as I said, I'm a Phillies fan. 
our pitching staff is decimated, and now we're falling apart. Why do you, what do you think made the Yankees still play so well? They have a very strong bullpen, number one. Very, very strong bullpen. Um, they played a lot of bad teams, too, to be honest with you. There are a lot of bad teams in the American League. Uh, a lot of bad teams. In fact, the American League pretty much race for the playoff spots is pretty much over. The only thing that's left is probably who the fifth, the fifth playoff team is. That's pretty much the only race. Because the Yankees are going to be there. I still think Boston's going to be there. Uh, Minnesota's obviously a sleeper team. Houston's going to be there. So that's four right there. So there's only one other spot open. So will it be Tampa Bay? Do they hang on? I don't know. Uh, I mean, will it be? I don't see Texas going to come on. I, I, if I had to put somebody's going to come on, I think was a chance, are the Angels. The Angels are a different-looking team now that they got Otani and Justin Upton in that lineup with Trout and Pujols and Cole Calhoun and Simmons. They're a different team. If they can get a picture, and now they're at 500. They've won about seven of the last ten. But that's the only race we're really talking about is who's the fifth, who's going to be the fifth the wild card team. That's the American League. Uh, the Yankees have, their role players have done very, very well. There's no question about that. They, and they put the bat on the ball, which I'm a big believer in. I mean, no team ever won. You don't win a championship by a home run. You don't do that. You win championships by getting two out base hits. Two out. How many times you watch the playoffs and there's a guy in second or third and they can't get him in? It's all the time. Two out base hits win championships. And I think that while Encarnacion is a really good addition, I mean, to any team, having Stanton Judge and Encarnacion and Sanchez up against a really good pitcher, you got, it's, it's too many strikeouts. That's too many strikeouts. I mean, the MVP of the Yankees, even with Sanchez's terrific start, the MVP of the Yankees this year is D.J. LeMahieu, who was leading, he's in like 450 with runners in scoring position. He's a true leadoff guy that they haven't had since Johnny Damon. Uh, D.J. LeMahieu has been great. And they put the bat on the ball. That's what they've done, these, these role players. They put the bat on the ball. You know, Mabin has been terrific. Urshela has been terrific. Um, they, they're a pitcher short, though. They're still a pitcher short. Now, do you think the Dodgers can come back and win a World Series? It's been very heartbreaking for them because the city hasn't won a, a title for a long time. What do you think their chances are? Because it seems like Kershaw, who was, you know, was, is such usually amazing during the regular season, he chokes up a little in the playoffs. Do you think they have a good shot of winning it this year, even though they've lost the last two? Yeah, if I, if I gun to my head right now, I bet them. Under my head, absolutely. They're, they're, they're a complete team, and they're going to get. And again, they have they have a terrific farm system, and they have money, and they have resources. You know, they're a big market team. One thing you're seeing now, by the way, is the big market teams really taking over. You know, with the exception of Tampa Bay, which they do more with less than anybody ever. Look who was in the playoffs last. I mean, you had New York, you've had Los Angeles, you've had Houston, and the Cubs. Those are the four biggest cities in the country. So, you know, and it's going to be the same this year. So it's not, the parity is not quite what you think it is. You know, it is, but you, yeah, gun to my head, the Dodgers. Yeah, sure. Now, I mean, right, I mean, who would you, who would you, gun to my head, who would you bet against them? Yeah, that's true. You know, they got a a picture going now who's got like a one point something ERA (laughs) in a year where, 52 runs are scored every game. Right. <laughs> we were, I was talking right to someone. Now, Kurt three or something like that, or Hill is or number four. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Um, anyway, uh, you have the, the Comic Cons coming up. and Now, do you plan to do a lot more of them now? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, until I get burnt out on them, maybe, but they're fun. You know, you know it, it, now again, I've only done the one. So I had a good time. So I would do more of those, I think. I like traveling. You know, I like traveling. I like meeting people. So uh, especially if it's a good, you know, good town or somewhere people. I mean, uh, you know, like find the restaurants in each town and hotels. I'm a big hotel freak. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, I don't see why not. Now, when you, you know, do, when, 
when you do them, what do you think you're most recognizable for? Arliss or your role in Batman? What do you, what, what do you think people are catch look at you most and say, this is how we know you? At the Comic Cons? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a, it's Batman 10 to 1. I mean, that's what they're there for, is Batman. You know, the Comic Cons? You talk about comic books. Yeah, but there's a lot. They, they get, they've changed a lot. There's a lot of different things going on now. Yeah, but there's, there's no geek world, you know. It's, it's. I mean, yes, I signed autographs for pictures of Good Morning Vietnam. I signed a few Arliss, and I signed a few Bull Durham. There's no question. But it's still 75% is Batman. Well, and, I signed, and you know what might be second is Hollywood Nights, believe it or not. Hollywood Nights I signed, again, because people like you, uh, they've become big cult fans. And see, what you mentioned something interesting. The Prism had it on in in uh, Philadelphia market or wherever you were. Uh, it was one of the first movies on HBO too, and they ran it over and over and over and over again. And fathers would watch it with their sons. It was a movie fathers and sons watched together. Now, what's interesting is that the sons have grown up, and now they watch it with their son. So it's a general, you know, and and the people love, you know, they. I would say Hollywood Nights might be after Batman. And, you know, I would say Hollywood Nights. Maybe Arliss because it was a TV series. You just reach more people. But, yeah, I would say those are the three. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on. And uh, you have, right, you're right. You have touched a lot of people with some great projects. And anything, you know, would you ever think of becoming a sports not a commentator, but a sports reporter on a TV show? Would you ever think of trying to do something like that? Well, right now, I'm actually starting to write a book about baseball. So uh, so I'm actually sort of doing it. And I do it with the sports reporters. I mean, if someone offered me a gig, I mean, I had my own radio show, Sports Talk, the show didn't fail, possibly because it wasn't online. Hard to do a sports talk show when nobody can call in. Um, that was very difficult. The uh, But no, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy talking sports. Uh, I do, do, you know, again, I, 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 don't, I don't listen to everything. I speak stays different day. Well, I want to thank you. Now, you're, I know you're on Twitter. Do you tweet a lot? No. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter, but between you and me, I don't do it. Okay. <laughs> somebody, else, somebody else does most of this for me. Well, uh, I, I, by the way, that's not uncommon. That's not uncommon. The, uh, uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I know that social media drives everything nowadays. It drives everything, as you well know. But... You know, it drives everything because it drives the demographic. Uh, you know, most people in the world aren't on Twitter. <laughs> most people who vote are not on Twitter. You know, so, uh, and again, the demographic, and it's a way to reach out to people. I like that part of it. You know, you do reach out. I posted a and again, I posted a picture of me the other night at that Comic-Con. I was with my nephew, and one of the things they had there was a Millennium Falcon. They had the set, so we we study, you know, we got into the cockpit, and uh, with, with me and him, like Han and Chewie, and I posted that picture, and within 30 minutes, I had like 700 people. I mean, when you get to that Star Wars stuff, that Star Wars is religion. That trumps everything. So it was kind of fun. But yeah, I mean, that's the power of, but that's who is on social media. You know, so it is, it's a different world. It's great. And, you know, you got progress. You gotta have it. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. People, go Google Robert and go on to his IMDb and go watch his movies. Go watch, you know, watch Arliss. If you can, you know, find Arliss and watch it. It was a great show. So people... You know, Arliss now, for the first time, it just started streaming. We were off the air for 16 years. Now, every episode is available on HBO Go and HBO Now. And if you have uh, Hulu or uh, Apple TV, and you can watch all, all 70 episodes. I uh, mean, that's a great fun. That's good because I have HBO Go and I always try to look for something. My fiance watches regular, as I call it, regular TV, and I'm always looking for a series. And I saw Arliss, you know, a long time ago, but it's good to know it's streaming now because now I have something to watch, and it's always good because it's entertaining. And I've talked to you, and I, I know Jim, so it's always great like that. That's what's great about the internet and cable and stuff like that now. Yes, you know, and and and. and... I haven't watched but a couple, but people tell me what, what surprises them. And now all the reporters coming to me talking about because how ahead of our time we were because we dealt with 
social issues. I was a big thing about that. I mean, we have episodes about uh, gay athletes, transgender athletes, domestic abuse, alcoholism, Alzheimer's, unwed mothers of pregnancy. Uh, I mean, we have a lot. And then we were getting awards for that back then, but no one really was noticing except for a few. And now everybody's saying, wow, you were so ahead of your time. And I said, no, no, I was of my time because I knew the stories. I, we were, I was a allowed to do them because HBO gave me, you know, most of it, they weren't in cahoots with any, they didn't have any deals or any sports league, so they were never going to talk to me about it. And um, people just, you know, they, they put you in a box. They thought here's a stupid, stupid sports show, and it, you know, it's a little bit more than that. But watch it, I'll be interested to see what you think of how they hold up. All right, well, man, I, want, I will, definitely will. You know what I'm, I'm going to do? I'm going to start probably watching it this weekend. So, people, go check him out, please. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 730 episodes. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Uh, I'll get back to you. And just so you know, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>